Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasta. Our guest today is Stefan Moller, co-founder and CEO of Clark, a Mexican challenger bank working to democratize debit and credit in Mexico. Clark is making credit accessible to all Mexicans, including those with no credit history. It helps people build credit by looking at how and where they spend their money without having to rely on obsolete and traditional credit scores. Clark's business has experienced rapid growth, having issued over 25,000 credit lines amongst its 200,000 customers in less than 12 months, and their growth has tripled during the pandemic. Clark has raised almost $73 million in debt and equity from some of the most prestigious funds in the industry, including NASPERS, Prosus Ventures, the World Bank's IFC, Guana, Moro Capital, a crew and Gilgamesh Ventures. And now please join me in a fascinating chat with Stefan Moller. All right, Stefan. Well, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Really, really excited to have you here all the way from Mexico City. Can we get started by maybe hearing a bit about your background? Of course. And thank you so much, Miguel, for hosting me. I cannot believe I'm standing in front of the most famous yellow baseball cap in fintech. I'm pretty excited about the opportunity, so thank you so much. Yeah, so my, my name is Stefan, Stefan Moller. I'm one of the founders and the CEO of Klar, a Mexican digital bank. To my background, I describe it as rudimentary entrepreneurship. I had a bunch of businesses in Mexico where I partly grew up. Uh, most of them in retail. We had uh, shopping mall kiosks and clothing stores in the city centers and like pretty messy businesses, but with a lot of learnings that we grew to an operation of about 100 employees and did it successfully for five years. I then sold out a little bit and joined Bain & Company, the big strategy consulting firm, where I had a lot of exposure to the financial services sector. I and mean, we can touch a bit more on that because I think that drove some of my thinking around Clar. And then I joined a small investment firm based out of London that also had some participations in companies in Mexico that were active in fintech. So that's my background. And about a year and a half ago, I jumped back into the trenches, this time in a bit of a more sophisticated matter by trying to build a bank from scratch and doing it so in Mexico. It's interesting. We do not get a lot of former investors who become operators. We get a lot of the opposite. How has your previous experience as a VC investor helped you along the way? Sure. And I mean, I worked for a small firm that was very operationally driven, right? Which was my, when I decided to join, that was the main reason I joined, to be honest, right? Like, I don't think I have a skill set that would make me super successful as an investor as of now. What I was looking for is for an operational take on things. And just like, just like consulting, what it offered me was a pretty broad perspective over their portfolio. So I spent some time in Hong Kong doing like accompanying a fundraise, but also being very operationally involved in the company. I then spent some time in Mexico, heavily involved in the operation. So I think it depends, right? I think some 
investment companies are more focused on the operational side. And that was my case. So I think that's an important caveat to highlight. And I think that's what I wanted. And that did give me the learnings in order to come in here because yes, fundraising is an important process of any startup, but what really drives the needle or what really moves the needle, sorry, is going to be the operation of the business, right? And that's the exposure that I wanted as well. That makes sense. So you decide to move back to Mexico City. This time, you know, you have Clara in mind, but tell us about that thought process. First of all, where did the idea come about? I'm sure you had some inspiration. Yeah. And then, you know, how was the, the process of the initial couple of months? Of course. And I think it, it's twofold, right? On one side, some internal factors, let's say, or influences that personally affected me. And as I mentioned before, as a management consultant, I work for a lot of the big banks, sometimes here in Mexico, and you start looking at their processes within, you know, and you start realizes that the, realizing that some of their processes are quite archaic, that it's pretty hard to find the why to the answers as to why are we doing it. Like some processes have to be complicated in regulated industries, but there should be a pretty clear why. So I think that was a question that kept me quite busy at night to say like there's not a lot of whys as to why some of these processes look the way they do. I also had a lot of exposure to dealing with their data teams, no? like the dealing with managing some of their IT projects, no? a bit more of a PMO function. And you do start to see that there are big opportunities in, in how data flows through the company, how the systems are built. And I mean, all of this infrastructure was built 100 years ago on average, right? So you cannot expect too much more. So I think having that exposure really shaped my thinking about saying like, there could be a couple of things that we could do better if we started from scratch. And it's going to be pretty hard for the big entities to pivot into a new mindset, much more than just buying a bunch of fancy techno. And then a bit of external factors, and I'm a pretty pragmatic guy to say like, hey man, this is an industry that is one of the few industries that is not been disrupted. One of the few industries that is not led by a software company. These are all financial institutions that like they're celebrating their 120th birthday right now in Mexico. So being very pragmatic is like, man, everything is getting disrupted. Everything is changing. Everything is being eaten in a way by software. And there are no software companies that resemble banking why not put one together? So I think it's a bit of a more intrinsic and a bit more of a pragmatic approach to say there's an opportunity here and it's a big enough opportunity for us to, to pursue it. I guess you're obviously not trying to recreate existing processes, right? That's the whole point. You're trying to come in with something innovative. How has this thought process evolved? What kind of product have you built yeah. And fintech is complicated, right? And more so in emerging markets because A, it's a regulated industry. Making money in regulated industries is a challenge on its own, but building software for regulated industries has its complexity. So what I'm trying to say with this first piece is there's a lot of systems that need to be built in order to be compliant with regulation. And it might not necessarily add a lot of value to the user, but you need to have it, right? If it's you're talking about KYC, if you're talking about anti-money laundering. So those fundamental products need to be built, but they can be built differently, right? And I mean, I'm starting by the very boring part and I'll switch over to the more interesting part about the product, but 
even there things should be done differently, you know, because why should you have a system like let's talk about uh, KYC and anti-money laundering, which I think are both good examples. So KYC, why do you need to gather the same documentation for an account that is going to have uh, transactions worth of $100,000 a year? Why should you gather the same documentation for an account that is going to have transactionality of $2,000 a year, which is the majority of the cases in Mexico? So if you're having the user go to the branch in order to sign 50 sheets of paper, you might as well have them sign 70 sheets of paper. No, but if you bring in digitalization into the processes, if you bring in systems into the processes, you do something that is gradual and you say, Miguel, if you're going to let's let's start by opening you the easiest, the simplest of accounts. And I want to know your name and kind of where, where you live. And once I see in real time that you're not just a $2,000 account, you might be a $10,000 account, let me make sure that I get this additional documentation. And once I know that you're one of the big accounts, let me get this additional documentation. All of it digitally, the regulation was built for it, but that's where the banks fail the regulation, where they say like, hey man, I'm gonna gather 70 pages of signatures regardless. So even in those boring parts of the product, because nobody gets excited about KYC, you can do things differently by building software that disrupts those processes, right? So I think that's a good, boring example. And then if you switch over to the other side of the equation, a bit more customer facing and like, where do we add value? Again, and, I, and for example, for us, Credit or what we refer to as liquidity management is a key piece of the value proposition for our users. And by liquidity management, I mean users and like 90% of Mexicans don't make ends meet till the end of the month. They need some sort of leverage on their money or get an additional boost in order to make those ends meet. How do we build a product that is differentiated, that is tailored to the specific needs of each one of our users? And again, like drawing the comparison to the banks, that's what banks are not necessarily good at because they say like, I have one product and it's a fancy credit card and you either get a fancy credit card or you get nothing. Just like with KYC, you get like this super fancy account or you get nothing. And what software does is it allows us to be much more dynamic with our products. And that's what banks are really bad at. And that's where the systems, it's not about the app. It's not about like, yes, the user experience is relevant, but it's about how flexible can you build your systems in order to accommodate needs in markets in where there's so many different needs. I wish that everyone would get a fancy credit card and everyone like then it would be very simple. But in markets, like from a social perspective, you have so many layers, you cannot have one single product. And I think that's where the big disruption comes from, from fintech. Build a system that tailors it, and I can give folks an overdraft of $20. Maybe that's all they need. They didn't even need a credit card, and maybe I can give it to them for free. If they need $50, I charge $2 per month. Right. Maybe if it's a bigger purchase, we build like we offer them an installment function. Right. And I think a lot of our thinking in terms of product on the goes on those two two alleys, right? Like the boring pieces that we need to comply with because it's a binary risk to our business, but the other pieces that end up delivering value. And if you ask me, the one thing that they have in common is that it is built upon systems that make it a lot more flexible. And I think that's something that the banks won't be able to compete with. Stefan, you bring a really interesting topic, and it's a topic that has come up in this podcast frequently. And it's the fact that in the U.S., we have an established fintech ecosystem. 
where there are fintech companies that provide AML, KYC, and you name it, right? That's not really the case in Mexico, right? Yeah. So it sounds like you have built this in-house from scratch. No, that's very true. And I make fun sometimes. There's this famous slide that got us all into fintech about like fintech, this is the bank and 500 startups are going to do every single piece that the bank does. I think we've all seen that slide. And I'm like, I've been duped. That's not the case in Mexico. <laughs> we ended up having to do quite a bit. Or like, if you think about it as a value chain, we ended up having to do quite a bit on our own. And I think that's what makes this business more complex because it's not just plug and play and let me get these guys for this and let me get these guys for that. As the ecosystems are is maturing, there are more offerings to solve needs that we have, but it still has been a situation. And I think that is the reality of Mexico. And I think that's the very acid proof that Mexico FinTech is still way behind other emerging markets, let alone the U.S., um, because we needed to build a lot of these infrastructure ourselves. And we're talking about boring infrastructure and we're talking about more exciting parts of the product. But it's painful, no? Because all software businesses come down to trade-offs, in my opinion, to trade-offs between like what do engineers work on? Like that's the only question that really matters in many ways. And we would all like to be working on this, but we have to be working on this because there isn't someone that is providing that service that we can offer the product that we want to build for our users. So yes, life is a bit more painful down here, but at the same time, it also makes like it raises the barriers to entry because once you've built those, you have option value to those assets. Like it's assets that we've built ourselves and they have a value to them, which then can allow me to justify a certain valuation for the company. So it's a bit of a two-sided sword, right? Where it makes life tougher, but at the same time, it makes the competitive landscape a bit easier to maneuver because it's not that tomorrow someone pops up. I do agree that the, like, the user loses to some extent because all those engineers that are working on the basic things could have been working on adding more value to their experience. So I'm hoping that the, the sector shifts in that direction. And the only thing that we can do is have enough resources in order to have engineers working on both sides of the equation. But it's a very fair point. It reminds me of my conversation with Adolfo Babas from Clip. And he said, building a lot of those systems in-house made all the difference. Right? Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your team and your co-founding team and also, you have an interesting structure, particularly for a Latin American startups, Latin American fintech, is that you have teams in two different continents. Yes. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. So, I mean, the way the team and like conceptually for me, there were two parts that I needed to deliver on. Like it is a business of execution. Like we're not at the stage where we're reinventing the wheel. We just need to out execute and out execution comes through great people. So my promise was let me put together an exceptional operational team. No. And that's what we have in Mexico where we do marketing and we do growth and uh, we do operations and customer support and regulation, compliance, whatnot, everything that is more user facing. And we've been able to assemble a stellar team of folks that come from MIT, come from Stanford, come from HBS, come from companies such as Uber, Google. I mean, it's a very solid team that can grow and operate 
an exceptional product that is being built in Berlin, which is the other part of the equation. No? And that was my obligations. I told the tech team, I'm going to get you the best team that can sell your product and operate it. And these guys need the assurance that they have a product that they're proud of selling and that they can believe it can acquire 30 million users. No. So that's like, that's what I spend most of my time on, right? Like making sure that that balance is there because that's my obligation. Who knows what will happen, but at least I met those two obligations that are important to me because if not, people are wasting their time. And what we have in Berlin and going a bit more to it is our engineering hub where we have about 90% of our engineers. We have a couple of teams in Mexico that we're actively looking to grow, but our CTO who is one of the key pieces of this company sits in Berlin, his organization sits in Berlin. And to me, it's his organization, no? Like I want to have like an engineering wonderland in Berlin where they get to act like they, they get to run their organization the way they would want to. And they have someone that can sell the extraordinary product that they're building. So that's the setup that we have. Berlin is a core part of the company. No, like you could say like it's the brain of the company in many ways because that's where the, the assets are being built and we operate those assets from Mexico. In Berlin, I mean, it's an interesting setup. We've been able to assemble a solid team, a stellar team. It's a market that very similar to Silicon Valley has a bit of magic to it. it sounds a bit cheesy, but it just attracts exceptional talents from all over the world. We have engineers from... I don't know the exact number, 13, 15 nationalities. And it's a market that it's a pool that is broad enough that we know that we don't lower the bar, that we can always continue hiring at the bar that we need. And right now, also one of my projects is like, how do we make that knowledge transfer? How do we make sure that folks from Mexican, from the Mexican engineering team get to go to Berlin? Now everything's a bit more difficult, but how do we make sure that that cycle flows? Because then we have something that is pretty hard to replicate. It comes with its challenges, but it's working. And so much so that we want to double down on it. I'm flying tomorrow to Berlin against all recommendations, but we need to figure out how to grow this team 2x, 3x in the medium term. Very interesting. So you launched the product, you're growing quite fast. You have um, you know, tens of thousands of, of clients. How many clients to this day? We have about 70,000 monthly active users defined as one transaction over the last 30 days. We've opened up about 200,000 accounts. So it depends on how you want to pitch it. But like what matters to us is to have engaged users, but we have a solid chunk of those. Yeah, no, no, that's impressive. But then at some point, just like everyone else, you get hit by COVID and your clients get hit by COVID. How have you navigated the last six months? Yeah, it's been a it's been a wild one, but the business proves resilience, and we're very and the team proves resilience, which is I think the two things that matter. So, like, how did it affect us? I think there's three ways in which it affected us. Like, one was operations, no. And what do I mean with operations? I mean, we're literally like the dual office is also an interesting one because we have a bit of a warning system. So we sent the Berlin office home. Everything worked. It's all very structured engineers, no problems. They have work that they're very easy. It's pretty easy to execute at home, like some could argue even better. So that was working. And in Mexico, 
started speeding up, we had to go home. And I think there, like we needed to make sure that people, we meet the security requirements that we have while the agents, for example, the customer support agents are working from home to make sure that we have access to the data and that some of it might be hosted physically because of security measures. So like there were a couple of situations in the Mexico office where we needed to come, come up with a plan, but we were able to execute and it's been working very well in the way that now People work from home. We started implementing a lot of processes like let's have more interaction, let's have more weekly all hands, let's make sure that communication is cascading the way it should, because I think that's the bigger drawback of not having your folks face to face. But I think that one we delivered on and it's working. In terms of investors, no, and, and, and like that's another piece. But we just we were lucky enough to have a pretty solid syndicate from our seed round and we just made sure that we gave them enough visibility and they wanted to make sure that we have enough time to focus on operating the business under these circumstances and not looking at our bank account every second day, right? So we made a plan with them. Let's say this is how we're going to structure it. This is what we do if A happens. This is what we do if B happens. This is what we do if C happens. Let's not worry about it. And then the last one is how did it affect our users and our growth and our business? And it's an interesting one, no? Like, I mean, it sounds cheesy, no? But uh, like, if there was ever an event that would leap from Mexico to digital adoption, it is this one, right? Because whomever didn't believe in buying something online, they will buy something online. Whoever didn't believe that you couldn't get a bank account without there being a branch does believe it now, right? So we see it reflecting in our numbers where our growth has been exponential over the last six months, right? Both on the debit side and on the credit side, there is more demand. Going to the bank account was always a pain. I don't know why people were going, but now it's 5x the pain, right? So there's certainly a positive nuance to this whole thing for digital services. And I think fintech still was lagging like because you're giving folks your money, right? So if it still was lagging e-commerce in terms of adoption, in terms of how comfortable do people feel opening up an account online versus how comfortable do you feel buying shoes online? We were lagging. I think we're catching up like quickly. So there is a positive nuance to this category. Given that we have a credit component, that's the other thing that is important, right? Like make sure that our users are doing okay. A lot of folks are having a pretty tough time in Mexico. A lot of jobs have been lost. A lot of jobs are on standby. Now things are looking better. But what was important to us is to be there for our users as well. So we needed to change a lot of our credit collections processes, for example, in which the communication was much more intense to say like, hey, Miguel, you owe us $10. No, it should have been due by Monday. Are you okay paying us on Monday or do you want to extend it by 30 days in which we give you a bit of peace of mind to see how your professional situation pans out? And that gave us tremendous positive feedback from our users to say like, no, man, like I, I'm okay. Thank you for asking though. And some of them said like, I'm not okay. I'll pay you back in 30 days. But the total, like the consolidated impact on, on, on NPLs or non-performing loans has been marginal. And that is what was important to us because we needed to ensure that we had that relationship where we wouldn't be the first ones where they say like, hey, forget about Clark. And I think that's where communication went a long way. How about the road ahead? How do you envision the Mexican fintech ecosystem evolving? And, you know, we have several examples of fintechs in the region crossing borders? Are you paying attention to the rest of the continent? 
I mean, I pay attention to to whoever from the rest of the continent is is coming to our home court. You know, I think that's what I'm paying more attention to. I think Mexico, there's so much to do in Mexico in fintech. Like there's so much to do and so few people to do it that there's a gigantic opportunity in Mexico beyond what we're doing. And whether it goes deeper into the infrastructure tech stack, no, like things that we've built for our core business, how do we leverage them for adjacent businesses? If you think about other target markets, no, right now we're only serving consumers, but we've built a lot of assets that could be leveraged for serving other companies, other types of target markets, no? So we're focused on Mexico. No, our eyes on Mexico. I think we'd rather go deeper into the assets that we're building because I think that gives us more option value versus just spreading ourselves thinly with a business model in fintech that travels easily is probably not a very profitable business, right? And I mean, like we're inventing fintech, but we're not reinventing financial services. If you look at organic expansion of financial institutions, like there's not that many success stories. It's all been inorganic and it's because it has a regulatory component. It's because it has a technological component. So we're building our assets, particularly from the technological side, in such a way that they can be leveraged to expand wherever. But if we want to build a business with profitable unit economics, we probably need to go a lot deeper into the regulation. We might need to go deeper into the tech stack. We might. So I think we have a bit of a different notion. I think Mexico is a crown jewel in terms of retail banking, and we'd like to focus a lot of our time on it and just going deeper into the opportunities. Yeah, I think the best regional investors will tell you if you bring up regional expansion very early on that's a red flag <laughs> of course man i have like a strategy slide and one of the like one of the lines along the which we could grow is regional expansion and it's like no don't even go there man <laughs> <laughs> well stefan so you've been an entrepreneur for for a long time not just with clara but as you mentioned at the beginning you've had other entrepreneurial experiences we do have a good number of listeners who are either aspiring builders, current entrepreneurs, you know, I'm sure you have some reflections to share on, on this journey. Of course. And I think it's all about team and about the people you surround yourself with. No, like make yourself the dumbest guy in the room. No, like hire smarter folks than yourself, surround yourself with smarter folks than yourself literally make yourself the dumbest guy in the room. Then you might actually make money. And I think tied to this is look like be very acid about like what is the business no like what are the quadrants of this business and what's the skill set that you have and where do you land on this and it could be that it has eight quadrants and you happen to be here then better make sure that there's eight or seven other phenomenal talents taking care of those quadrants. Maybe it's a simpler business and you just need to focus on this, or maybe it's all about one quadrant and you triple down on that quadrant. But be very acid with the market. Look at what it is going to take to build a billion dollar business and make sure that you're very acid with your skill set and complement it as quickly as you can and shooting as high as you can. Because I think sometimes it's hard, like entrepreneurship, like gets on, like takes a toll, takes a toll on the insecurities. And sometimes you don't want to expose yourself to adding insecurities by having folks that know more about it or that might outshine you. 
those are the folks you need, right? So I think it's all about how asset are you with yourself and what is it going to take to build a billion dollar business in that category? And Stefan, before we go, there's something we'd like to ask all our guests and that's a little bit about your hobbies. And I'm sure you do have some free time that you spend outside of cloud. Tell us about those hobbies. Is it like pre-CLAR or post-CLAR? Because I think it's changed significantly. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I like to do sports. I like to swim. I like to do triathlons. I like all of that stuff. I've been spending less than I would want on it. I like spending time with my family. There's a baby on the way. I have a Congrats. Kid. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're very excited. I have a 10-month-old Cocker Spaniel that I think I spend more time with than anyone else. So yeah, it's about like chair, like finding that quality time that I, I have through all this experience and spending it with my small little family that I have here. I think that's what I've been devoting most of my, my time with. Outstanding. Well, Stefan, uh, really a, a huge pleasure having you on the show. Uh, congratulations on, on all the success, all that you're building. Uh, no doubt we'll be seeing a lot more and a lot of great things to come. And obviously now you are a friend of, of Wharton and uh, you, you mentioned talent. You know, we have some of the best talent at Wharton, so make sure to make sure to recruit from us and, and keep us in mind. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. It's on, it's on my list. It's been a pleasure. Congratulations on the tremendous success you've had with the, with the podcast. I think it's, it's exceptional what you guys are putting together and, and yeah, we would we'll, we'll love to keep you posted on, on how we, how we build this monster. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you, man. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.